Luke chapter 24, uh, verse 13. So if you've got your Bibles and you'd like to follow along with that, Luke 24, starting at verse 13. Uh, we're going to read from verse 13 through to verse 35. Uh, and it definitely was good planning that we made it to this point, right on Easter Sunday. Luke 24, starting at verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognising him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are, and How slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were open and they recognised him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven, and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognised by them when he broke the bread. Let me add my welcome to Nick's. Uh, My name's Rod. If you are and you are visiting, um, if you're a regular, it's great that you're here um, as we celebrate Easter together. It's been a lovely weekend to be able to reflect on Jesus' death and his resurrection. And so we're going to look at this final section um, tonight. Um, and for those online as well, we hope you're encouraged as we meet. But let me pray for us, ask that God will really help us as we grapple with this word and think about um, our response to Jesus, the risen King. Let's pray. Now, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the freedom to be together, uh, for the joy of the fellowship that we have in Christ if we know him as our Lord and Saviour. We thank you for the gift of your word. Help us not to take it for granted, but rather to hear your voice clearly as we read it. And we pray that tonight uh, you might apply it to our hearts and minds, that we might 
not only understand but respond rightly and live in the light of your word. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, sometimes things don't go according to plan. Sometimes things just are turned on their head. At the end of 2019, um, our family was fortunate enough to be able to take a trip to the United States, and one of many plans we had uh, was to get to New York at some point. And many of our plans came to fruition on the trip. But as we planned to go to New York, we were hoping to be there on Thanksgiving and then to be part of the Black Friday sales that started the following day. Um, we were flying out of San Diego for New York, but we had a short stopover in Phoenix, Arizona. When we got to Phoenix, it was just to be a quick changeover. They would automatically forward the baggage onto the next plane and we'd be taking off within the hour. And that was all going to a plan. We seemed to be on the runway about to take off when the captain suddenly came over the system and said, oh, they'd found some small technical problem in the electronics. They thought they'd better get that checked by the ground maintenance crew before we took off. But it'd just be a minor fix, no problem, and soon we'd be in the air. Well, we taxied back. Uh, we're parked. They're checking it. We're sitting on the plane for about half an hour. And eventually they come back on the microphone again and said, well, it proves not to be a minor fix. Actually, we're going to have to get you all to disembark from this plane and um, then we'll be putting you on a new flight and don't worry, you'll get to where you're going. Well, we get back into the airport terminal and chaos ensues. It's Thanksgiving. There is no replacement flight. And of course, every flight that's coming through the terminal is booked up. There's not a spare seat on any flight. It's that time of the year. Americans travel more on that day than any other day. They've all got to get home and see their family on Thanksgiving. And so then we're in this massive long queue of all these people that have come off our flight hoping to get a, a seat here or there, in our case, five seats. And eventually, after an hour or two, we get promised flights, seats. Um, but the flight that we're being given will take off in about 16 hours' time. And so then we're staying all night in the airport lounge, unable to sleep, trying to fill in our time, sitting in front of the one burger shop over and over, just hoping that the time will go past. Well, by the time we finally got to New York, uh, Thanksgiving Day had gone, uh, Black Friday sales had gone. Uh, we arrived the day after that and eventually got to our hotel extremely tired. Now, it's a small first world problem, but we were disappointed at the time. Our plans just didn't unfold as we had hoped. Well, in the encounter that we have just had read for us tonight between two followers of Jesus on the road to Emmaus, in Luke 24, things are just not unfolding as the disciples had expected. Of course, they're not dealing with just some small disappointment. They're dealing with the grief of having lost their close friend, Jesus, who they'd been following for the past three years. More than that, they're not just dealing with the grief of that, but now the disillusionment and the doubt about whether they really understood who he was. And so it seemed that their hopes had been dashed. Confusion had now entered. And so the question that we're going to consider tonight from this passage, which I think it raises for us as it did for those first disciples, is how does Christ's resurrection bring hope? How does Christ's resurrection bring hope? That's what we're going to consider. And I've got three answers to that question tonight. First answer is this, by overcoming the hopelessness of death by overcoming the hopelessness of death. So notice what is recorded again from verse 13. 
Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened, and as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognising him. And he asked them, what are you discussing as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. You see, in the first part of this chapter, the first 12 verses before this section, uh, we have the account of the empty tomb. Um, Early at dawn on Easter Sunday, the women had rushed to the tomb. They were hoping to further embalm Jesus' body, put spices on it. They weren't really sure how they were going to get in because they knew this massive rock had been put in front of it. But they get there, the rock has been rolled back, the tomb is empty. They rush back to the disciples and say, you won't believe it, but Jesus is not there. And the disciples don't believe what they're hearing from them. Eventually, Peter and John run down to the tomb to try and verify what they were saying. And they do find the tomb empty, of course, the linen folded up. But still they don't believe. Despite the missing body, there's no easy belief here. They don't think, oh, Jesus has clearly risen. They go back confused to the other disciples, unsure of what has happened. And these two disciples on the road to Emmaus are typical of that response to this point in the day. Notice this is the same day. It's in the afternoon. And what this account does on the road to Emmaus shows this journey, not only of them physically moving, but a journey spiritually moving from disillusionment and doubt to clear certainty and belief that Jesus really had been raised. So notice in verse 13, this account uh, happens in the afternoon. Um, Jesus comes up, has this conversation with them, and we see from their body language even, they're downcast, their faces are down, they stand still. It's just, ah, you know, everything has not gone as planned. They can't believe that they're here at this point. Now, at one level, as we read all of that, it's a natural response, isn't it, for us as humans. Here they are, they're really numb. They're mourning the loss of their close friend, their master, the Lord Jesus, the death of a loved one. And so often it's like that for us as well. They're overwhelmed by their feelings of grief. But as I mentioned, there's more than that going on. It's not only how they feel about Jesus having died on the cross as they'd witnessed a couple of days earlier, but what that now means for them and who they thought he was. And so they're struggling with how to consider what has unfolded and how they should look at Jesus at this point. And so as Jesus probes them, notice their responses are quite interesting. It sort of matches the despondent body language, even in what they say to him. Verse 19 He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and the rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. But notice, despite that exciting finish to what they've just described, their hopelessness at the death of Jesus has not been removed. Uh, They're still confused. They're feeling empty about this situation. Notice they're really clear about where the blame lies for Jesus' death. You know, it was the chief priests, the rulers, their religious leaders have done this and let them down. 
And we see in verse 21 that now they have doubts. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. The inference is, well, we don't think so anymore, which is why back in verse 19 they just refer to him as a prophet. I mean, certainly he was powerful in word and deed. He did impressive things. But now, you know, perhaps he was just another prophet like John the Baptist, not the Messiah. His death has ended the hopes they had in him because they viewed Christ only as a victorious figure. When they say the phrase, the Redeemer of Israel, they're thinking about the physical redemption of the nation. They're thinking somebody who will overthrow the Romans who are oppressing their country they want their people back, their control back, their independence. They wanted somebody who was victorious, not somebody who ended up in this humiliating death on a Roman cross. And so if Jesus' death made them doubt that he was the promised Messiah, the reports of the empty tomb just have not convinced them of anything more either. Even the verification of the empty tomb by the other disciples, it's just not enough. They just can't put all the pieces together. It's just not gelling for them at this point. And so instead of going back and thinking about what Jesus had said to them, they've just reached this point of making their own conclusion. They've revised their estimate of Jesus. You know, have you ever tried putting something together without reading the instruction manual? I think IKEA encourages us to do this, right? They only print half the instructions, surely. This is why we all struggle so much. I've done it many times. In 2002, uh, some years ago now, Christine and I bought some hooks, you know, those famous self-adhesive plastic hooks, and we are just going to put up a few things around the house. We'd moved to a new place. There was a whole bunch of photos that we'd never put up, so we put up a few small photos, and then I thought, oh, wow, we've got this really big Ken Duncan panograph of Victoria Falls in Africa, and we'd got it as a wedding gift. We'd never put it up. Now's the time. We're finally going to put that up too. So I put it up above our bed, and it was perfect. I put two hooks, you know, it was a little bit heavier, and um, it hung beautifully and straight, and I walked away. Job well done. And it was about, I don't know, two hours later when there's this almighty crash. We're out in the lounge room and suddenly smash, run into the bedroom and it's fallen neatly. It missed our bed head. It just slid down the wall and landed on the plaster skirting board, buckled the frame, completely smashed the glass front on it, which tore the picture completely. You know, it's at moments like that where you revise your estimate of the product. You know, up to this point, I thought self-adhesive plastic hooks were the best thing since sliced bread. And now they're a terrible invention. Who came up with this stuff? Look at the mess that I now had. Ruined our wedding gift. Surely it wasn't my fault. And after we'd cleaned up, and my wife Christine considered, you know, the remote possibility that perhaps I hadn't read the instructions, <laughs> and maybe I'd overdone it with the weight, and it was then that it became clear that maybe if I'd had 50 hooks, I was still in trouble. And um, it actually had in bold letters halfway down the back, do not use to hang a picture over your bed. <laughs> Clearly hadn't read that bit. You see, if only I had gone back to the instructions and thought about what was happening, thinking about my response rather than doubting and here we've got something far more profound, the person of Jesus being doubted by the disciples rather than going back to the manual on the Messiah, rather than the scriptures. And so they'd revised 
They just worked things out in their own head. And they found themselves now confused and doubting. Which brings me to the second answer, a second answer of how Christ's resurrection brings hope. Not only has he overcome death, but he has fulfilled God's word. He has actually fulfilled God's word. All the promises of the Old Testament find their fulfillment in this moment. He has perfectly fulfilled what was supposed to happen. And this is the crux of Jesus' words to these two disciples. Did you notice as he comes alongside them and why he rebukes them, I think, so strongly in this section. He has listened to them it's probably for some time as they made their faulty assessment about him. Quietly he listens to them and then eventually he gives his input. Verse 25, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained what was said to them in all the scriptures concerning himself. See, Jesus' point is that they didn't believe, they didn't understand the scriptures, they hadn't properly read the manual on the Messiah. If they had, they would know that Jesus was supposed to suffer and die and then be raised on the third day. In fact, we know as we've worked through Luke's gospel that he said at least three times these very things to them himself. But obviously as they heard it every time, they just blocked that out, yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, in their mind, victorious Messiah, these things will never happen. Now, Jesus instantly, as he came up to them, could have said, look, guys, I'm Jesus, and opened their eyes to the fact that he was right beside them. He could have gone straight to the point like that. But he doesn't. And it's such a good thing that Jesus doesn't because it helps us today some 2,000 years later because we can't have Jesus walk up beside us, but we can look at the same scriptures that he pointed these two men to. He says what you need to do is reread to think about what it is that God has already revealed and written down for you. And so he explains to them what they should have already known from the Old Testament. Now, what a great conversation that would have been for somebody to unpack, let alone Jesus himself, all that the Bible says pointing forward to this moment when the Messiah would come. Is it any wonder in verse 32 that we read them saying, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? And this was not some great mistake. This should not have led to disillusionment and doubt. This was exactly what God said would happen. It's exactly what Jesus, the Son, had been telling them in the three years of his public ministry with them. And so it's only at the very end of their interaction with Jesus, as they press on him to stay, oh, look, the day is late, come and have a meal with us, don't go on. They get him to sit down, and as soon as he gives thanks and breaks the bread in front of them, their eyes are opened. And they finally recognize, here is the risen Christ right before them. And so on this journey of seven miles, they've moved from disillusionment and doubt to renewed hope and belief. It's a wonderful picture of somebody moving in their understanding. And that's how we're called to understand this section of Scripture too. Now, maybe you tonight... I'm still not sure where you stand in relation to Jesus. You don't know whether you can trust these events of the first Easter, of his death and resurrection. Did all of this happen? But let me tell you, when you get to the point of understanding, then there is such great joy 
in knowing what God has done on your behalf. Look at the response of these two disciples when they finally know. You know, they've been trying to tell him, oh, it's getting dark outside, you better stay for a meal. As soon as they've had this meal and they recognize the risen Christ, all of that argument goes out the window and they run all the way back to Jerusalem, supposedly in the dark, so that they might tell the other disciples of their great joy that they have seen the risen Jesus. Hallelujah. They're so excited that they run back all the way and reveal to them that Jesus truly is alive. And I think this wonderful unfolding, this slow movement towards faith in Jesus is wonderful for us, for us today again because so many of us come to the truths of Easter and the Bible quite sceptical. And we see here there's no just easy belief from these first disciples. They don't instantly say, as the empty tomb is, oh, yes, Jesus told us there'd be an empty tomb. We know he's been raised. It's all good. End of chapter 24. No, they spend the whole chapter doubting, being disillusioned, having to be convinced, and it's only at the very end when Jesus is right before their eyes that they are overwhelmed finally with the evidence and they say, we can't deny it any longer. He truly is resurrected. And Jesus, in his time with them, spends most of it trying to just unfold the scriptures for them provides a template for us of how important God's word is, that we might see the promises that were made centuries before, saying that the Son of God would come, and here he is fulfilling it perfectly. And so often we ignore the Bible, don't we? We don't see it as a treasure. We don't see it as the greatest evidence for the death and the resurrection of Christ. We set it aside and we want to hear some third party give their opinion we find somebody on the internet that says, I once had a friend that told me this and so I don't think much about Jesus. We say, oh, that must be true. And then we don't go to the primary document ourselves and read for ourselves the eyewitness accounts of those who were there and have written down for us what happened on that first Easter Sunday. We just ignore it and set it aside. You know, the Wall Street Journal um, reported a few years ago that nearly 1,000 different cookbooks are published in the United States every year, many of them glossy, full-colour, super-expensive books. And there are hundreds of magazine subscriptions on cooking. But at the same time, fewer and fewer Americans are actually cooking at home each year. The reporter of the journal uh, talked to one lady who was a high flyer in New York, a portfolio manager, about her own practice and, and the fact of all these books. And she said, oh, yeah, well, I bought 16 cookbooks in the last three years and I subscribed to two magazines. All right, okay, well, so do you cook often at home? No, I haven't cooked for about four years. And the last time I cooked, it didn't turn out well. No, like, how does it work in this way, in this culture, that we can have all this information around us, but then we don't actually use it? Likewise, there are more Bible translations today, more commentaries, more apps for your Bible than ever in the whole history of humanity. But for all of that, so often they just remain on the shelf or they remain switched off on our phone. You know, one person has said, if all the Bibles that are neglected in the world were simultaneously dusted, then the sun would go into eclipse. And yet Jesus wants to say to those first disciples 2,000 years ago that the thing they need most is to consult God's word. It's the scriptures that you need. Go back and look what God promised and see that it is perfectly fulfilled in me. 
But maybe you want to say, look, hang on a moment. Uh, you know, all this talk about the Bible and you know being trustworthy. Can I really trust the Bible? You know, hasn't there been lots of um, you know books written about how you really can't trust it, and there's been movies made about it in recent years, and you know, there's all this stuff on the internet. And so we'll think about Dan Brown's novel, The Da Vinci Code, that came out uh, nearly 20 years ago now. And they made a movie of it in 2006 starring Tom Hanks. It was the second biggest grossing movie that year. $750 million worth of people went to see this movie that told how the Bible really can't be trusted. In that movie, um, based on the book, um, Jesus is not single. He's, he's ma married to Mary Magdalene. Um, he's not the son of God. He's just a prophet. And they upgraded him at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. They had a gathering of church leaders and they decided they'd have a vote. Let's upgrade him from prophet to son of God. Um, and we don't see that in the Bible because Constantine, the Roman emperor at the time, decided that he'd have a new Bible and rewrote it so that Jesus looked a bit better than he was. And so we've upgraded him to the divine son of God. And so people hear all that and think, wow, oh, that must be true. I can't trust the Bible. But there are so many conspiracy theories like this. People have hammered at the Bible for 2,000 years. I want to say to you, it's the most trustworthy ancient document that we have. Even Tom Hanks, who is not a Christian, was asked about this at the time because there was so much hoo-ha in America about this movie. And his reaction was this. The story we tell is loaded with all sorts of hooey and fun kind of scavenger hunt type nonsense. If you're going to take any sort of movie at face value, particularly a huge budget motion picture like this, you'd be making a very big mistake. The truth is not found in a fictional novel. It's not found in what my uncle once read when he was 20, 50 years ago. It's not found in somebody who I don't know who wrote something on the internet yesterday. You know, if there was any doubt, actually, about the accuracy of the Bible and its transmission and its copying down through the centuries, that was completely done and dusted once for all in 1949. In that year, they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea, Israel, Palestine area, they found in a cave just adjacent to the Dead Sea whole scrolls of the Old Testament from the first century BC up to a hundred years before Jesus was born. The latest versions we had at that time of the Old Testament dated to the 10th century AD. So they're able to go back over a thousand years and compare the earliest versions they had with this amazingly rescued version. And you know what they found? They found 99.5% agreement. There was not a change in anything that adjusted the meaning of yet one sentence in the Bible. The accuracy was phenomenal. And Old Testament scholars and archaeologists at the time were blown away. There has been no story of Chinese whispers where the truth was lost and it was rewritten, copied by somebody and completely changed. Not for a moment. You can trust the Bible. God has not only ensured that we have his word, but he's ensured that it's been accurately passed down. But perhaps you're still not convinced, even if it's got all this archaeological evidence and proof through these things. Maybe you think, well, I still can't agree with the events that are recorded into it. 
You know, and if I had the time, if I had a couple of years and I could just research myself, I could disprove this thing. I could work out, you know, enough proofs from archaeology that Jesus just couldn't have lived and died and rose like the Bible claims. Well, you know, lots of people have had that view over the years and have done their own research. Perhaps a famous recent one was Lee Strobel. He was an American who was an atheist. He'd studied law and journalism. But suddenly his life was turned upside down when his wife became a Christian suddenly, and he was in shock. He couldn't accept Christianity at all. And so her becoming a Christian just really threatened him. He said, I, she invited me to a church where I went with her and I heard the gospel explained in a way that I could understand it. But while I didn't believe it, I realized that if these things were true, it would have massive implications for my life. And so I decided to use my journalistic and legal skills to investigate where there was any shred of credibility to Christianity. And for nearly two years, I investigated science, philosophy, history. I read literature. I quizzed experts. I studied archaeology, he wrote. And on the 8th of November 1981, I took out one of my yellow legal pads and I drew two columns and presented the evidence for and against Christianity. And by the time I got to the end of that, it would have taken me far more faith to remain an atheist than it would have taken me to become a Christian. And so I became a Christian. Well, he wrote up his story in a book in 1998 called The Case for Christ. And maybe you saw the movie that came out just a few years ago in 2017. Let me say to you tonight, if you're still grappling with these things and you want a place to go to think through this, this would be a good movie for you to watch, A Case for Christ. But I want to say to you even more than looking through the eyes of another sceptical person in Lee Strobel who eventually came, became convinced don't just watch a movie, <laughs> some second-hand account again. Go to the source yourself. Read the Gospels, the biographies of Jesus' life. Read the shortest one. Take you an hour and a half to sit down and read the Gospel of Mark. We'd love to give you a free Bible. We've got a bunch out in the foyer. You could grab one after this service. But make an informed, informed assessment as an adult. Don't go on what somebody else once said or what your parents thought, or some friend said to you once. Think about it for yourself. Investigate the truth of Jesus' claims. Read the eyewitness accounts. But I know for many of you tonight, you've been Christian for many years. And so I guess my challenge to you is, are you continuing to see God's word as precious, as a treasure to you, in which you hear true, perfect, inerrant account of God's interaction with his people and ultimately humanity? Are you reading it or is it sitting on the shelf collecting dust? You need to hear God's voice louder than all the voices of the world that will tell you otherwise. You need to give yourself to reflecting on the hope that God presents to you in the giving of his son. I think many people as they look out on our world today think it's a mess. <laughs> It's not hard to come to that conclusion, is it? We see the chaos in Ukraine. We see the mess in Afghanistan. We see all the problems in Myanmar as the government kills its own people. 
We see what's happening in Palestine, and we could go on and on and name 50 countries. It's often estimated that about 15 to 20% of the world are affected by war or famine at any one time. And if we've only got 70 or 80 years, and we experience that kind of chaos and mess, and those 70 or 80 years are ruined, what then? Is there any hope beyond this life? We've been watching at home a lot of Euro news and France 24 as they do coverage of what's happening in Ukraine. And they've had some heartbreaking little docos. They had a little snippet the other day that I saw where they interviewed this young guy, about 25. And he just buried his wife, who'd been shot by the Russian soldiers a few days before. He said, well, I'm lost. I've got nothing to live for. I was here in this place because of her. But if we think that there's something more beyond the hopelessness of this life, the hopelessness that death brings, then surely it's the one person in history who has actually conquered the grave. Surely if somebody can beat death, there is our hope, something unique. And that is what Christ offers us. The only perfect person who lived this life, the only one who could defeat the grave, the only one, therefore, who can offer you life, life eternal. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you did not leave us in the dark, but you have given us your word, your living and active word. It truly records the events that happened that first Easter. Father, more than that, you gave us your Son, who is the focus of your plans, for you determined to gather together a people that are your very own, even before the creation of our world. And all the promises of the Old Testament find their yes in Jesus, who came as our great high priest, our sacrificial lamb, who laid down his life only to take it up again on the third day, for death could not hold him down. We thank you for his power over all things, including life itself. So, Lord, remind us again that Jesus is the Lord of life. May we come to him, the one who can offer us a hope, a hope that extends beyond the mess of our world. Help us to see in him the one who offers us the very thing that we need, the thing that people are ultimately searching for, a purpose, a life beyond what we see around us. Father, help us to come to him. We pray these things in Jesus' name.